parenting. Uh, this past weekend, if you were here for our marriage weekend, you know that we were incredibly blessed by Steve and Debbie Wilson, who were with us Friday night and Saturday through lunch. If you were here uh, for that weekend, I know you were amazed. If you were not here, you missed something. It was incredible, but don't worry. We are going to have them back in the years to come. We want you to be a part of that. One of the things you need to know, First Mansfield family, is that you have an incredible staff here at First Baptist that I am privileged to work with. So many of you thanked me for that weekend, but the reality is it was our staff team that pulled that off. Can we say thank you to the First Baptist Mansfield staff for that? Yes. Not only that, we had incredible volunteers who worked in our kitchen, who helped in all different manners of ministry through that weekend. Can we thank the incredible volunteers God has given us here for that as well? Amen. We had over 200 people here uh, that were blessed by this. We had at least three people we know of who prayed to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Can we celebrate that, church family? Amazing, amazing weekend. Well, this morning we're coming to the conclusion of this series, this time together. And to pull all this together, we've assembled experts. Experts in the field. That was kind of a joke, but kind of serious too. Experts in the field of family ministry uh, who are going to share with us today. The reality is, church, there are so many different things I've wanted to talk about through this series that I've just not had the time to cover. And so this morning, we're going to cover a whole round of different ideas and topics that are meant to equip you, no matter what season of life you're in as a family, uh, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you have kids in the house, whether you don't, this panel is going to be a blessing to you. Let me introduce very quickly our panelists to you. Here first to my left is Karen Tain. Karen is the family minister to preschool families at MacArthur Boulevard Baptist Church in Irving. She's been serving at that church for 20 plus years. And she still loves kids. <laughs> Very thankful for Karen. She's married to Rob and they have three grown children who you said are all over the world. Mm-hmm. They're Asia, you, uh, Asia, Germany, and one just moved back. Okay, Asia, Germany, one just moved back. That's fantastic. Second, uh, we have Lance Kroll. Lance is a church ministry associate with the Southern Baptist of Texas Convention. Our church uh, is uh, a part of a family of churches called the SBTC. It's our state kind of denomination we're part of. Lance is the expert at the SBTC in the area of discipleship and family ministries. Lance is married to Mandy and they have two beautiful kiddos. I have known Lance for, how long have I known you? Are they on? You make sure they're on there. Yeah, there we go. 13, 14 years? Probably, yeah, I never thought I'd be the guy saying, I've known Lance for 15 yeah, years, but I, I think I'm that guy. Lance used to be in the college ministry world at the convention. I was a former college minister, and that's how we connected. We're thrilled to have Lance here. And last but certainly not least is Aaron Jen. Aaron is um, a former college student of mine. I discipled Aaron when he was 19 years old. And now Aaron has gone into the entrepreneurial world of tech. He lives in San Francisco. Um, You said you're in civic tech. What does that mean again? Uh, So I work at, basically, sorry, at a a couple companies that work at the intersection between politics and technology. Uh, And outside of maybe Shelley, I probably can have the claim to fame of knowing Spencer the longest. 
and I have lots of Spencer isms that I have carried with me my entire life. So, uh, if you I'm want turning someone, red, I'm turning yeah, red. If you want someone to change your life, uh, this is the pastor that's going to do it. So, yeah. Well, Aaron's very kind. I've known Aaron for a long time. One of my greatest joys as a pastor is getting to see people I've discipled and I've worked with soar, and see them launch out into the world and not just be successful in business as Aaron has been in the field of politics and technology, but also to see him thrive in his faith. And so we're thrilled each of you guys are here. I'm going to start with just a general question, just to get the juices flowing. What would each of you say uh, are some of the greatest challenges or challenge you see families facing today in our country? Lance, why don't we start? Or Karen, why don't we start with you? Yeah, you were ready. You were ready. I'd love Karen to start. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would say what's a blessing and a challenge is just access to information information overload as parents uh, research and look into things. It's wonderful to have that, but it can be overwhelming, uh, especially to parents of preschoolers to have so much information available to them um, in this day and age. Great. Yeah, kind of on a similar vein, I I would say living out the good news in a world that doesn't love Christ or his message or the truth of the scriptures, and we see that ever-increasing every day where the, the world is running faster away from the biblical truth, the gender stuff, all that, and yet we're, we're trying to, to raise another generation to love Jesus in that world. And that, that's overwhelming at times for anybody, especially parents and young parents today, I think. Uh, I, would, I would probably say that the current like American social construct around family uh, is being challenged, I think, both in ways that are biblical and ways that are unbiblical. Uh, and I think we'll, we'll get to this later, but I think um, the current sort of family like argument that we've been making in terms of the last 50 years in America is failing, uh, and it's not very resilient. And uh, I think that the church needs to basically expand its idea of what it means to be in family that I think is more in line with biblical principles. But as y'all have mentioned, like I think information, our cultural challenges are actually showing that now. So returning to what Scripture actually argues is actually a real Christian family. Uh, I think is the the challenge that we have to live, be that light in the world. Right. And so parents, we want you to know that um, our church family, part of the reason we do panels like this, part of the reason we're engaging in this is because we do want to partner with you uh, as you're wading into a hostile, very confused culture. I want to talk a little bit about the preschool years for a minute, Miss Karen, and we're thankful for your experience and the wealth of knowledge God has given you. We have a lot of parents of preschoolers in our church. We have a lot of parents of preschoolers in our community. Uh, Mansfield's a very young community. Uh, what do you see as some of the greatest challenges parents of preschoolers are facing today? Well, I would say the most literal is just physical exhaustion. It's just a, a an exhausting time of life uh, with little ones as uh, you go through those years. I think another huge challenge, and they often don't notice it, is drift. Uh, drift as a couple because you are so busy uh, with the child that, that needs their needs met. Uh, you're so busy with schedules and so forth that you don't notice that your own marriage is drifting. And so I think uh, preschool families really need to be cautious about that and be on guard and be intentional. And then your drift uh, in your relationship with God. It's uh, finding time to have time spiritually with the Lord looks so dramatically different once you have little ones. And it takes a lot of creativity to make it happen. Mm -hmm. And so I think uh, the dangers during those years is that you'll look up years from now and realize, wow, I'm really far from where we were before we had kids. Hmm. 
Yeah, that's so true. We actually, one of the themes from this past weekend we had with the Wilsons uh, was a really engaged discussion about the danger of drift. Uh, and uh, what are some of the signs you're seeing if couples are drifting? When you're watching them in those preschool years, as you've watched parents come through with kiddos, how are you seeing that kind of manifest itself in their families? Um, I think probably just uh, not even attempting to make time for uh, being alone, just the two of them. Um, we, with our preschool parents, we try to come up with creative ways they can date in at home after they put the kids to bed. Something that my husband and I have found um, really helpful is we have a list of six questions that we ask each other every week that keeps us accountable to each other and where each other's doing, uh, how they're doing. Um, so several of our young families I know do something similar to that. Can you give us an example of uh, a couple of those it's, questions? It's from, it's what's called the Love Letter Life, and it's what's brought you joy this week, what's been hard, how can I help you, how can I pray for you, is there anything that's unconfessed that we need to talk about, um, and what are you dreaming of? And it just helps us continually reconnect uh, because we can look up and there will have been weeks gone by before we have those deep conversations. So we just make that a habit every Thursday night. Several of our couples do that after the kids go to bed uh, one night a week. That's yeah, gold. I, I, I think one of the things Shelly and I talked a lot about after the marriage weekend was, while we felt very connected at some levels, it's easy. one of the easiest places it's easy to drift is in the emotional level. Yeah. And so those questions, I just as you rattle them off, give us the book again. Where you? Get- it's called The Love Letter Life, and I believe they have a marriage journal that goes along with it, okay. um, and they have the same questions. Okay. Well, I just want to encourage parents of any season in life uh, to find time to kind of engage, to press in, and to make sure that you're connecting. Let's talk about discipline for a few minutes. One of the greatest challenges preschool parents are facing is discipline. Now, my preschoolers are perfect and well-behaved and never do anything wrong. Um, No, you guys know that's not the case from some of the stories I've told about my Paige Allison Plumley, my four-year-old. But for the rest of the people here who have kids that are going to make pad choices and and have temper tantrums and, and act out, what are some of the keys you've seen and observed to doing discipline well with preschoolers? I think that one of the big keys, and this is a a word that's hard to to hear when you're a preschool parent, is consistency. And that's really hard when you're exhausted in the midst of those years. Um, I think it's also important to dig down to the root issue and not just discipline for behavior. If you're disciplining a child for their behavior, you're teaching them to not do that behavior in front of you or to do it well enough to not get caught. If instead of saying we don't hit our friends, instead we say God tells us we're to love our neighbors as ourselves, and you begin to dig down to that root issue of helping them think beyond themselves, what's important to God and pleasing God, that heart knowledge will go so much further in life when they're no longer with you. So you want to get to those root issues and not just discipline behavior. Uh, that's critical. And always be thinking a stage ahead. Um, which is hard when you're in the midst of uh, toddler tantrums. Uh, You need to be thinking, what's it going to look like when they hit those late preschool years? And lying and tattling and bossiness becomes a common issue. So those shouldn't be happening in preschool years? Well, not until late preschool years. Okay, okay. (laughs) Um, And and be thinking about what it's going to look like when we get into elementary and we're dealing with some of those issues. One of the best resources I can give you, it's called National Center for Biblical Parenting. Uh, Scott Taransky and Joanna Miller have a series called Parenting Shifts, 
and they will take you through each of those uh, age categories and what to expect and what to do when you're in the midst of them. So being prepared for the next stage ahead. So I can go ahead and tell you, parents, one of the things we will do as a result of this discussion is we're going to pull and sift some of the resources that have been mentioned and email those out to you. And so if you're on our church email list on Facebook, different places, we will we'll sift. I know Lance will have some things. Aaron will probably have some things as well. They're going to recommend to you to read or to check out. Um, we will try to compile all that together to get you that information because we've already heard a couple of really good resources for you guys. So flip it around. If that's what you'd encourage as far as discipline goes, what are some common mistakes you're seeing parents of preschoolers make as they engage in that? I think beating themselves up when they mess up. Um, they, they you mean can, the parents, not the, the kids? Parents, right? okay. Not okay. The parents, not the kids. Okay. Yeah. Um, just simply getting weighed down in the guilt of not doing it right on a given day or for a given event and not being able to move past that. Um, I think that's huge being able to pick up the next morning and go, okay, yesterday wasn't my best. And, uh, so that's where having a plan for what do we do is very helpful. Yeah. You talked about exhaustion and, um, mom's going to get a witness on exhaustion in the room. We've got some moms that are exhausted. What would you say to some mamas in the room who are doing everything they can? Uh, they're doing their best to invest and, and to be the kind of tip of the spear on raising these little ones, but just feel like they're barely hanging on because of how fatigued they are. How would you encourage them? I would encourage you to have realistic expectations of what is doable for you. Uh, And that includes weighing the expectations that others are placing on you, expectations from in-laws or parents or um, other moms. I know some of the moms at our church deal with that. Comparing uh, in this day and age of social media, it's really easy to compare someone else's highlight reel to your blooper reel and feel like they're getting it all right and you never get it right. Um, So be cautious about comparison. It will completely haunt you where you are. And just to know that mom guilt is real. Uh, It's real, I hate to tell you, for a long time. (laughs) And so expect it and have uh, be able to speak truth to yourself about what God says about you, how he has prepared you to raise this child. Uh, So when the mom guilt comes, you can kind of deal with that. And then seek out moms whose kids are also in the same stage as yours, who are, their family is spiritually grounded. I can't speak highly enough of the importance of community in this stage of life uh, to, for you to have people surrounding you that, that are going through the same thing and uh, get encouragement in the midst of that. Good, good. Can I say something? Yeah, Yeah, I think this is what she said was so important in the sense that this is where the church steps in. This is part of the responsibility of the body to come around you in this time. And when you're isolated from the church and from other moms or other families, that's where we don't get that communal encouragement we want. But the one thing I would want to say for this is this is where we don't talk enough about the need for dads to step up. And I think dads are probably more engaged than they were in a lot of the daily tasks of, par- of young parenting than 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, a, a generation that never helped change diapers. Uh, my father-in-law never changed a diaper. That was just kind of his generation. That's what he said. 
And so I think dads are a little more engaged. If you are a boomer that changed diapers, I apologize. <laughs> I appreciate you. Um, but you're the exception. Um, no, but I think dads are a little more engaged. But the reality is if, if she's, you have to step up, up more. And, and I mean, so practically, if you do some other activities, there may be a season that you put those aside, dad, because your children and, and just the need of them at a young age is so important. And specifically, you're talking about hobbies yeah, or different if things. You, if you hunt, I'll, just, I'll speak where, where I'm going to make people mad at me. If you hunt and that hunting season is something that takes up a lot of your time where being at home with a newborn. So, so find things like that where you're putting things off. There's a season that the seasons change and right. the kids get older and there's more, there's more time to do different things and all that. And it, there, there are seasons in that, that looking into your wife's eyes and knowing how she's struggling and all that. And, and we're, we're bad at it because we don't know how to be parents other than what we saw in front of us when we were, uh, uh, you know, modeled before and the, and the mistakes our parents made and the good things they did, that's all we know to start with. That's why this community is so important. But I just would encourage dads to step up and do more for the family and, and not be a, a, a passive bystander saying that's her responsibility. That's our responsibility. I take turns at night with the feeding or things of that. I, I do what's necessary because that, that, it's our child. It's not, it's not her child. It's our child. So that's just a personal thought. Aaron, you're single? but you're an active part of a church. How do you see the body of Christ needing to step up to help families and parents that are in that kind of season of exhaustion? The, there was an article written by David Brooks, who's one of my favorite uh, columnists recently that kind of went viral about the, uh, to use a, a Tlaib phrase, how the family is very anti-fragile. The nuclear concept of, of American family is really kind of a post-1940s, 1950s uh, manifestation of the way that which we view community and as we sort of expanded away from very urban centers, we started having this sort of more suburban, hyper-nuclear concept. And David Brooks, who is a religious, sort of you could say maybe say like moderate conservative, uh, says that a lot of the pain that our society is feeling today is because that that argument of family is wrong. Uh, and that family is a, is a uh, he's arguing from a secular perspective, even though he's religious, because the article was secular, because it's in the Atlantic, uh, that essentially if you're doing this by yourself, that you have the wrong view of the sort of order of creation about why you are given the responsibility of this particular child. And specifically you're meaning if there's a parent in the room that thinks this is all on me, yes. I'm on my own, I'm by myself, that that's, an, that's a wrong view. Press yes, yeah, yeah. So uh, I think biblically, uh, you know, extending that argument that David Brooks has taken, I think a biblical concept as he is a Christian and secularizing it to, he says, uh, uh, you should expand your view of family to be just not only, you know, mom, dad, children, mom, dad, you know, they should say other families. But I think the biblical concept of community is that singles have a duty to families. And that if you read uh, in the picture that, let's say, uh, the picture of the early church that Paul's writing in the epistles, you see this this sort of mutual responsibility that is delegated both to singles, people that don't have uh, uh, children that they're directly responsible for, to show up for family members. But what is very key is that family has the duty, family like you know that family concept, that nuclear concept has a duty of adopting singles. And in fact, we have uh, letters from Origen, one of the early church fathers, that uh, baptism was a was performed both by the early church. You know, pastor that was the that was leading the body, and also the individual that you uh, that you uh, saved you, and that it was a two year process. And that person that witnessed to you, you would then therefore then now go into that family, 
and, they, and you would be adopted into this new identity because the decision to become a Christian in 100 or 200 AD was a decision to basically radically change your entire life. That no longer would you go to the Roman market and identify with a Roman God and, and you know, give alms to that. But you had to reject that entire lifestyle. And the people rejected you, and your entire name was, like, destroyed because you had to adopt a new identity. And I think that concept of, of mutual responsibility between those at different life stages to help steward this gift of children, right? Uh, and I also think that it's, it's kind of funny that if you talk to parents about their kids, and I, I can babysit a lot of my friends' kids, uh, like often it's like we don't view them as actually little mini-humans, right? They're us, but just small or large or mini. I don't know how, how old your kids are, right? Like they are free agents, right, that God has given agency to and the creativity to. And we almost view them as like kind of like this like, you know, thing that we can control or this little robot. It's like, no, they're us, right? And it's our job to, to, uh, to steward them into a, uh, a follower of Christ. Right. And what, what I want our church family to hear based on this discussion is, parents, if you are tired, if you find yourself isolated, if you find yourself uh, like you're kind of in a hole, you're stuck, our church is a place where you can find community, where you can find connection. And one of the reasons we do press really, really hard on the life group ministry at First Baptist is because we want you to be in places where you can find connections with others so that you can bear the burden together of raising your children. And so I, I just want to challenge and encourage all of you that are here to recognize that one of the reasons why we're pressing into that is we want you to be in community so that you're around people that are locking arms with you to help you raise the next generation for Christ. Lance, I want to turn to you for a second. Let's talk about um, some of the more technical aspects of the home and devotions in the home. What are some practical tips you would give for families in the room about integrating reading the Bible and praying as a family? Some people have kids praying with their kids, but some people could just be praying with their spouse. How would you encourage them to bring that into the home? Yeah, I'll just start at a high level first a little bit, and it comes back to your word, intentionality. If we're so busy, if your family, the, the enemy's really good about knowing how to fill every moment of your day with something, even good, and, and the enemy of best is often good because many of you maybe travel, you have sports teams your kids are involved in, drama, I mean, music, whatever it is, but if you're not intentional and you don't actually, I think, make time, like set aside time that the whole family knows, often it just won't happen regularly. So the first thing I would tell you is make intentional time about it. I would sit down as a family and say, when is it best for us to do this? The second thing is don't expect perfection. When you start anything like this, it's going to be chaos. And if your kids aren't very young, it gets harder. It's very hard for a family to sit down when they have teenagers and, and has never done something devotional before and start. And, and oftentimes, and I work with a lot of dads in my ministry, dads feel very insecure with that. And so the first thing I would do is sit down and have a family conversation and say, we haven't done this, we're not experts on this, but we know we need to, so we're going to start. Help us to do this well. We know that God wants us to do this. I never saw this modeled when I was growing up, so I'm starting something that I haven't seen done before. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's where it gets hard on the specifics on that. I would think the, the, the practical side of that is you go back to Deuteronomy 6, the best times, I think a lot of times, is when... When, when, when they rise up, when they lie down, as you go along the way, when they're with you. And so it, the pattern of our life has been, it's, breakfast hasn't been great for us because of our time, but I've always, when the kids are getting ready for bed, I've always had time where we've talked about the Bible together, we've read the scriptures, uh, we've prayed together. 
Um, my kids are teenagers now. I have a, a sophomore in high school and an eighth grader, boy and a girl. And uh, I, I take them both to school in the morning, and we have devotionals in the car that they'll read now if they're at that age, just trying to get them thinking about the, the things of God in the day. And then I'll pray for them individually as they get out of the car, before they get out of the car every day. It's not the end all, but I, I, and I'm praying over them. Lord, help them today to model biblical truths. Help someone to come up to them and let them demonstrate your love to them today. Um, help them when they have a difficult moment to lean into you so that their dependence is on you, not on anything else today. Right. So I'm trying to help them as they're at that older age do that. But I would say at any age, specifically part of that is intentional and find it where you're naturally traveling with them and where you're going and where you have kind of normal rhythm. So if dinner time is a rhythm for you and you're not kind of all over the place, find it that you're specific about finding that to do. And so, you know, we developed years ago a tool that's a free tool that any family could use in here. It's a, it's a, it's a family app. And so uh, if you Google, it's iPhone or Android. If you do SBTC and then family, you'll find it. Uh, and I can give you the details on how to we'll get there that later. We'll but that it's got over 200 different lessons you could use. There are applications for different ages. So if you have preschoolers or teenagers, there's questions at the end that you can ask and you can appropriate. It's not the end all, but it's kind of an entry point because we don't a lot of times know how to start and what to do and how extensive to be. And the other thing I would tell you is don't don't be concerned about teaching, uh, you know, a full theological course at home, right? I mean, that the church will step in and help with that. Just get them used to time in the Word. And I've got some other thoughts on that in a minute, but but get them in the Word regularly. And then, but the thing I'll tell you, the hard end on the backside is if you're not modeling it, it struggles because they're watching as much as they're listening. And so the first thing I would tell anybody that wants to be consistent about the Bible is that you've got to start in your own heart. Right. Because it, it will trickle down. Right. So put yourself in so many shoes here listening to this. They go, Lance, that's a great idea. I'm a dad or a mom, but I'm totally uncomfortable praying with anybody. That's not me. I don't do that. What would you say to people here, people listening to this, who may feel a little unsure of themselves when it comes to praying or having spiritual conversations? Yeah. Well, first of all, you're not abnormal by that. So just dispel the fact that you're the only one in the room that thinks that. Actually, Many people think that. Right. And part of the struggle is I just I, I, a lot of us didn't see that modeled growing up. It just wasn't a part of the DNA. We, we were at church. If you grew up in church, you were at church, but that just didn't happen at home. And, and for my parents, I don't think they were, they were not maliciously. They saw what they were doing, what they had modeled from the generation before them. And so part of it is um, I, have one, I have one church that did this. They, they told the dads that felt uncomfortable praying. They said, go into your kid's room after you know they're asleep. And pray out loud to, for over them as they're asleep. And as silly as that may sound, it actually helped dad start to verbally articulate those thoughts. And then over time, it got to be the place where they could actually pray while they were awake and start to develop a prayer life with them. But, but something simple as that is a great tool. And just realize also, you're, you don't have to have a long, articulate, deep prayer for them. Right. Just start what, praying for them and, and working on some, some needs, you know, the idea of confession and pray over them. I love the idea of, of just asking the Lord to bless your children where they can hear that prayer. Uh, John Trent years ago wrote a book on the blessing, and I, I love that because the the, the notion that, the, that that we would have dreams for our kids, and the dreams for our kids, we want them to grow up and be successful and take care of us when we're old and all those sorts of things. But ultimately, the dreams for my kids is that they would grow up and love Christ, and that they would walk with him, and that the pattern of their life would be greater than the pattern of my life toward him. 
That's the greatest dream I have for my kids. And so if I can help them think through that, praying over them, letting them hear that, um, man, I, at any age, I think it sets seeds that, that'll, that'll last. Right. Yeah, please. I would add for preschool parents, start this when they, do, they don't even know what you're saying and what they're doing. So you get past the awkwardness and how uncomfortable it is. Um, get used to calling out those God moments when you see something amazing that God has done. Talk to them about it. And that, t- that way, by the time they are old enough to be discerning, it's not your first time to pray with them and share with them. Parents, one of the things, and uh, church members in general, one of the things you got when you walked in uh, was this. Can you grab this? It should have been in your worship guide. It looks called Spiritual Milestones. It should have been in, or it should have been handed to you as you walked in. One of the things I just want to plug here very quickly is inside this, you can see how we're trying to partner with you as parents. Uh, how we're trying to come alongside you and say, here are the key kind of things that we're wanting to invest in you. And so what you see in this, parents, is just a quick pattern environment. This is talking about what we're teaching them here at church, how we're investing in them. And that memento is a kind of a significant moment or experience we're trying to bring them to in that season of life. And so in the same way that in uh, secular education, you've got a scope and sequence of what you're trying to take a kid through or a first grader through, whatever, this spiritual milestone, a little brochure, gives you an overview of what we're trying to partner with you to do with your kiddos. I'll plug again, preteen passage. Please, parents of fifth and sixth graders and even parents of seventh and eighth graders, we're going to open this up to middle school parents as well. Uh, This is on a lot of y'all's radar already. But this is one of the ways we're trying to help you feel more comfortable engaging in those kinds of conversations. Another thing you need to be aware of, and we're going to plug this on the screens really quick. We've got a couple of really key retreats for parents. Uh, We've got a father-son retreat coming up uh, in a few weeks in March. This is for dads and their sons of kinder through sixth grade. And then a few weeks after that, we've got a mother-daughter retreat coming up uh, for kinder through six for moms and their little girls. So these two kind of experiences are some of the examples that we would give you of how we're trying to do the very things that our panelists are discussing. Let's turn now to technology. Technology is a huge, huge question that not just parents have, but grandparents have, uh, anybody that's uh, observing kind of the landscape today is seeing how technology is changing our everyday experiences. Lance, just real bluntly, what boundaries do you think parents should be setting on technology for their kiddos? Well, we have the tech expert here, but um, I'll start. I'll just give you some stats of some things you may or may not. So Gen Z, so if your kids are 5 to about 23 years of age, they fit into that category of Gen Z today. The group after that, 5 and below, I think it's been alpha, generation alpha is kind of the designation. So you got millennial, which is what I am. Yeah. Okay. That's uh, 82 to... 80 to 2,000 is right. kind of how I do it loosely. Okay, yeah. and then Generation Z is what's after that. That's what you're yeah, talking there, about. There a lot of millennial kids is Gen Z right. and some of the alpha. Uh, most, most Gen Z today, um, about they, they say about 85% are, are finding, basically they see and learn about new products, new technology stuff all through media. Half of them spend about 10 hours a day on screens. Now, my kids are high school and junior high, and their school day is all on screens. There's no books anymore for them. It's all, it's all visual driven. So part of that is based on that, but they're used to that. And about 70% spend at least three hours a day 
um, watching videos. So three out of almost three out of four, three hours a day are on watching videos that are not related to school. All right, so that's that's their day. So so the thing I'll tell you parenthetically is your children are being discipled. The question is, what are they being discipled by? Think about the amount of time that the church has to pour into them and you have to pour in them versus the things that they're watching and consuming. They're being formed by what they're seeing. So what they see becomes very, very important because it, it is shaping their thought process for the days ahead. And that's that's scary. That's, that gets really scary in a hurry, and I don't, I don't, I'm not here to scare anybody, uh, but but not turning, having a blind eye toward this is, we can't work that way. We have to be intentional about it. And so uh, specifically your question was boundaries yes. on that. And I, I think the, the reality for boundaries is you have to have constraints for them. You have to have limits. One of the things that I know folks, parents that don't have any limits, you need to have specific time limits. How, how long per day are you allowing them to view that? What does that look like? Uh, what access to? There's different technology that gives them access to different types of sites. And so you need to be in, intentional about that. Now, how long that is kind of depends upon you and your children. One of the things that I would say about that is uh, look for activities that your family can do that pushes away from technology at times, no matter what age they are, mm-hmm. because it allows them, you know, they say that the average attention span of a Gen Z is about eight seconds. So about eight, every eight seconds, their mind is wandering to something new. And so I, I love the idea of looking. This is where we would have nights where we'd have no electronic nights, where we'd, we'd all sit and read together. We would push into things or activities that would push away from technology. Not that it was bad in any way, but it was so consuming that it kept us from things that, that really that we wanted to do and we needed to do as a family. Right. And so activities and outings that sent us outside where we, we pushed the technology away at that time and nobody had access to it to be able to go and interact, I think are important. I think you have to be intentional about that. I don't know if I'm being specific enough right. for you, but it, it kind of depends on your family a little bit. So I'll make pitch one to Karen here. Let's just be honest, parents. One of the reasons why screens are deployed in our homes oftentimes is because they are excellent pacifiers. Uh, it's much easier at times to give your kid a screen and because you know they're going to be out of your hair as long as they have that screen. So it's a win for the kid because they get the screen. It's a win for the parent because their children are occupied. What would you say to parents? What cautions would you give to parents who maybe are over-reliant on technology to kind of pacify kiddos? Um, we see this a lot, especially when a second child comes along. It's kind of like the um, what's a survival mode, if you will, sometimes. Um, just research what it is they're watching. Uh, just know that it can bleed from 30 minutes into two hours before you know it. Mm. It trains your child to be entertained instead of creating um, entertainment for themselves. Uh, and, and we've learned that the process is as important as the product when it comes to kids playing. So for them, uh, they get a lot from building Legos and playing with baby dolls and doing so forth. And when they're simply sitting there having the product fed to them, they don't have that process uh, so I'm not saying screens are bad, but I'm saying be cautious what they are and put those limits on them and just be aware that it can can go a lot longer than you originally expect. Uh, as Lance mentioned, we do have a technology expert on our panel. Uh, are there dangerous apps and forms of technology, Aaron, that you would try to caution parents on? Uh, I think it really depends on, well, one is like, when I think of dangerous, I think of people taking your data and then misusing that. So 
you know, don't don't use any particular apps that are, let's say, designed and made in China because that's not really uh, going to be very favorable for your kids or for yourself. Uh, but the I, I think that that there's been a movement away from you could say a more Star Trek view of the world rather than Star Wars view of the world uh, in the last sort of two or three years because I've worked in Silicon Valley for over about a decade, maybe a little over a decade. And it was the golden era. I mean, everyone loved technology, folks. Oh, look at this young billionaire. Oh, he's going to transform the world. And the last three years, everyone's like, oh, no, now it's everything's bad, right? So you kind of have to step yourself out of that sort of mimetic narrative that you, we all are sort of sitting in right now and realize that this is a relatively recent conversation that we now have been talking about, let's say, self-restraint. Versus everyone in Silicon Valley, let's say, if you look during the golden era of, of technology, would have told you, yeah, if all your friends are on Instagram, I feel very sad for you, right? If your only conversation with friends is on Facebook, then they're probably really not your friends. And, it, and most people in Silicon Valley would have told you, told you that. But the, the rest of sort of the you know, broader, non-technical population thought that that was a replacement for things that uh, God never designed to be a replacement for. I, like, it shouldn't be lost on you that the overwhelming majority, 90% of conversation, or communication, I should say, is something that a computer can't handle. It's the in-person. It's the, it's the smell. It's the sound. It's this, it's this interaction that we have with other people. As Jordan Peterson says, we actually have no understanding about how people communicate, right? So a computer can never actually fully encompass that uh, large portion of human interaction. Uh, this is why when, you, uh, uh, when you're, like, let's say, don't like somebody, right? Don't like a person. And you walk up to them and you see their face. It's almost immediately disarming. But then when you see that person drive a car, you immediately hate them again, right? Because there's something biologically happens in our brain when we see a person face-to-face that when we see them in the car, always sees an inanimate object. The same thing happens with the Internet is that we don't really see people. We see this abstraction of zeros and ones and algorithms. And therefore, it's easy to write something really mean. It's really easy to lie. As the saying goes in Silicon Valley, Twitter is a place where you go lie to strangers, or, or sorry, tell truth to strangers, I apologize. Tell truth to strangers, and Facebook's a place where you go lie to your friends. Uh, it's because Twitter is a bunch of random people. You don't even know who they are, right? But Facebook's like, you know, why would I, you know, be honest with, uh, with, with my friends when I can just give a false picture, or you could say ego engine. That's really, Instagram's really just an ego engine. So it's really appealing to a sort of our base instincts as, as humans. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing if you understand what it is, like, all based marketing, right? Fashion, like you could say, or movies, or you know, going to see Avengers. They, they're all appealing to sort of our base instincts because they're trying to communicate a complex message to you simply. Uh, so technology works very similar. So, so it, there, there's nothing sort of uniquely being positioned in technology that isn't a tool being used elsewhere in society in terms of how we actually buy things or consume things. What is unique is sort of the ease accessibility of it and how now it is in the sense of like free and and they have a completely different business model that wasn't really in existence uh, before. Uh, but, like, from a, from, like, is technology bad? No. Because technology itself is everything in this room. Uh, you know, we have particular types of innovation that occurs specifically in information innovation. Uh, but technology, in my opinion, I have, I, I have more of a Star Wars view of the world where technology would be helpful to humans. It will augment our capabilities. It will, it will reduce our weaknesses. Uh, but, but a lot of, I think, families now approach, uh, particularly, I would say, uh, uh, not even just families, just most people in America have more of a Star Trek 
I think now view of technology as if the Borg is floating through the universe and is ready to take over our brains and we're going to be so totally we're all be out of a job in like ten years, right? Uh, which uh, I can tell you uh, won't happen, uh, but has been a constant theme since Thomas Malthus, who developed the Malthusian theory, that technology will eventually end all the human race, which has never happened. And Thomas Malthus was wrong two hundred years ago, and he continues to be wrong today. Right. So stimulating discussion. Let me try to bring that to a head, parents. What I would encourage you to do is to find time in your daily schedule when technology is off limits. Whatever that looks like. If that's 5 to 7 p.m. from the time you know kids are kind of getting home and you have dinner and you're kind of winding down, establish a zone in your home where, there, where technology is not something you're going to be engaging in. And that's to facilitate a lot of the discussions and thoughts and ideas that you guys have had. Yeah. And I would just be very careful with social media as a whole with your kids. Um, we, we have a service. Uh, we use a couple different things in our home to, to kind of guard that a little bit. But our kids are not allowed. I have teenage, and even if your kids are younger, I don't, we don't allow them on social media yet. Um, if, you, if you follow that, it is an engine that just, it, it's very scary at points. And at some point they will be. But, but we want full understanding of that and helping them navigate that. And, and the reality is there are people searching for your kid. There's just bad stuff out there. The, the truth is that. But, uh, but we use some, some tools. Do you want to talk about tools for a second? Sure. Or, yep. um, uh, so we, it's not the end all, but years ago before it got big, we used Circle. Some of you know Circle. Disney bought Circle. It's really good not for outside the home but in the home. So any kid that came in. I have an interactive where they had to come to me. I put them on our Wi-Fi. I have now control of the, the, the things that they can and can't get on in our home. I'm aware of what they're searching through. Uh, my kids have, have grown to hate that because I have control of that, and that's okay. Um, they don't understand what they will someday, and yeah. I, I do see that. And so, and then there's other tools that are good with that put a – and I would advocate because of the pornography conversation, which is probably coming up uh, – you have. I would. I would have a VPN on every teenager. Some sort of understanding of what sites they're getting on. Um, if if you that's something that you're putting on their devices that yeah. you can know where they're going yeah. and what they're looking at. Not so much. What, I mean, you can track where they're going, but any iPhone, you can. I mean, if anything, you can really track where they are. I mean, and I do. I know where my kids are. Uh, but but the bigger thing is what sites they're on. I mean, and the reality is, in the palm of their hand, they have access to everything you could imagine. Um, and so, and they're not wise enough always to be able to step back from that. And that's still my responsibility. And so I, I, I have control of what they view and what they don't view. And that's not to be mean. It's just to keep them from things they just can't process yet. My 16 year old son's brain does not understand exactly all of what's happening with that. And as it's, his brain is developing, he doesn't understand why he can't be on things at times. And I'm like, you're. I explain as best I can, but you're going to have to trust me that at some point this is actually for your good. Let's so, and I can when that you send that, I'll give you some examples on the Great. email that y'all send out. I want to add one more thing on the internet, and we're going to change subjects. But I do want to talk about pornography. Yeah. Uh, pornography is um, an epidemic yeah. in our culture. It's a massive problem. Lance, just share with us a little bit about your research and statistics as you work with families. Yeah and talk to them about the dangers of pornography. Yeah. Give us some of that information. We've, we've done a lot of work on this. Most, most individuals, and it's more boys than girls, but with the change in gender focus, it's actually growing among girls nowadays. 
but most come across pornography at age 11 or 12 nowadays. And so here's, if you have it, a great website is Fight the New Drug. It's not a Christian website, but if you just Google Fight the New Drug, there's a ton of research on what pornography does. And it's actually very much similar in the brain to what cocaine or other heavy drug use does. It rewires the brain with a, with a dopamine re- request so that just as that, that uh, addict wants another hit, the brain it does the same thing. The problem with pornography is it's never satisfying. It digs you deeper and deeper. There's more doors to go through, and so it's destructive. And most, uh, most so 18 to 34-year-olds is kind of the most research they have. Almost 75% of males will view pornography on a monthly basis. And even among Gen Z on that younger group, the, the, the numbers are growing rapidly. And so they have access to it. And here's the deal. It's, someone likened it to smoking in the 60s. Everybody thought smoking was kind of a cool thing to do and okay until we realized the bad thing element of it. You took pornography, which used to be a magazine or a, something at the edge of town that was a store, and it's now in the palm of everybody's hands. And you take a good kid that comes across something that they shouldn't, uh, and all of a sudden they're hooked and, and they don't want to tell you because they're, they're really a pretty good kid and they're stuck. And so th- the reality is you have to have constraints because they will, they will, get, they will get drawn into this. And, and I'll just say parenthetically that many of the men in, in the culture and many of the men of our churches are struggling with this as well. And so we, we've worked on some tools to try to help guys find freedom from that and to realize that the, the, the worst part of the sin is to keep it hidden where we can't get help. So I just want to say this again. I, I think I've said this from the pulpit a couple of times. I want to say it again here, very official. Um, if you or someone in your family is struggling with addiction to pornography, do not stay in the dark. Step into the light. And by the light, I mean communicate with somebody here in this body what your struggle is. Now, that's me. That's one of our staff members. That's a life group leader that's a youth worker, whoever that is, don't stay anonymous. The enemy wants to keep you enslaved to that. And one of the ways they will do that is by encouraging you to keep it in the darkness. One of the things we will do if you step into the light with that is we will love you, we will encourage you, we will pray for you, but we have great resources connected to the state convention and other places that work with thousands of people every year who are in that position. And so if you find yourself in that spot, I would appeal to you. I, I would even go far, so far as to beg you. I would beg you, don't feel like you are a freak or a weirdo. The statistics tell us the opposite. It's rampant in our culture, and we want to be a place that's encouraging you and helping you. Lance, any final word on that? Yeah, I would say if you come across your kids that you find them caught in, that the first thing I would tell you is don't freak out on them. Because they, if they come to you and you connect with them, you want to deal with it and process it and find them, help them find freedom and change from it. But if you freak out on them, and, and what I mean by that is you just go ballistic, um, then they're not going to want to come to you the next time to deal with it. And the other thing I would say is part of this goes back to what you were saying. Part, we need to change the narrative where the images on the screen are people. And for, for guys with a girl on the screen, image that's on there, that's, that's a daughter, that's a sister, that's a mother, possibly even, um, and, and help them realize that, that the, the culture has desensitized us to that as an image, um, and that's actually a person. And when you start thinking about it and you help children start to think, and you know, teens start to think about it as people, 
then all of a sudden, you know, would you want someone looking at your sister like that? Right. Well, it becomes more personal, and they start to connect it back to humanity. And, and, that's, and that's a biblical thing, too. Is this how we would honor who God has given us as people, like as, our, as people in our community? And so we have to change the narrative a little bit on that and help them. But get them help. Get them a counselor, someone that can help them. If you, if you, get, catch a, if you have a child, you find them or they come to you, and they're caught in that. I want to start to bring this conversation to a close, but I don't want to do that without talking about some of the gender, sexual identity confusion in our culture. A part of what I would contend is that the pornography epidemic we see in our culture is creating an, uh, this, an atmosphere in this environment where people are getting more and more twisted in their view of self and their view of sexuality and their view of gender. Um, Aaron, you are a student of culture. You observe and watch what's happening. Why is this, in your opinion, why is this topic of gender and sexual identity confusion becoming such a heated issue? Uh, it's the church church's failure to actually minister to people who need love the most. And uh, there, is a, there is a lot of scapegoating and otherness and tribalism that actually occurs within the conservative church, and I'm a member of that body. And not understanding that the, the purpose of Jesus, Jesus came not for good theology, not to, to write you a good story. He came to save people. And uh, there was a phrase I, I long ago, because I, I didn't grow up uh, in a Christian home, and Spencer actually baptized me, um, uh, that God doesn't care about numbers. I'm like, yeah, he does, right? Like, numbers are people, right? Mm-hmm. They're souls. They're, they, they, are, they are one of us, right? So I, I think that it, it's, it's really disappointing to hear people who are part of the LGBTQ community what they think about Jesus, right? And it's never, it's never like, oh, I don't know if I, you know, believe in evolution or like, you know, oh, like, do you believe seven days, right? Like, it's never that, right? It's, it's always these really painful stories, these painful stories of how they've interacted with God that, like, it's not what you believe. It's not what you feel. It's not like what you see in Jesus. So then you have to, like, reflect, and it's like, why do they, why do they feel that way? Like, what, like what, what is their experience that has actually brought them to that point? And, and we don't, I mean, I, 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 you know, when we, I think everyone in this room outside of the children have lived through the gay marriage debate that actually deeply, I'd say, uh, uh, impacted our culture and created massive fissures between people uh, that I would say, you know, I don't think the church asked for, and the church actually was severely unprepared uh, for, for this debate. Uh, but the way it responded was, I would say, one, completely unloving. Uh, and was 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 falling into the classic political trap that like American politics puts Christians in, as if there is an other right. Uh, the 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 arc of the Bible is, and we are the unique faith that says this: is there is no other. We are all sinners, and we all need grace. So, uh, but it, it's 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 just it's really sad to to hear stories of Christians that are uh, sorry hear stories of uh, the gay community when their family is Christian. And uh, specifically, uh, one friend uh, they still witness to this day who said that when he came out, his parents banned him from his family, right? So you, you see the... Uh, sorry. Uh, so you see, uh, it's, just, it's just really sad because it's like not what, what everyone in this room knows who Jesus is. Um, 
You know? Sorry, Emma. Sorry. I, 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 I can I, jump in here if you need yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Let me jump in and say one of the things that was really refreshing about this weekend with the Wilsons, uh, if you were here, you knew that they told a lot of their story about their children being wayward and their children walking away from the Lord. And there was a defining moment for Steve and Debbie when they said, you know what? We don't agree with our kids' lifestyle. We don't agree with what they're doing, but we're just going to love them. We're just going to love them to pieces. Not if they do this or don't do this, not when they do these things. We are going to show them mercy and grace in Jesus. So what I would appeal to you parents is if you have a child who, for whatever reason, is not doing what you want them to do or doing what we would say is biblical Christianity, it's wrong. Okay, we're not going to say it's right. It is wrong. Some of the things Aaron's talking about, the, the lifestyle these people are choosing is wrong. But that does not mean that we should stop loving them. There is a way to hold up biblical truth and holiness and righteousness and still love extravagantly to show grace and mercy. You are not going to give up truth if you love someone in your family who's living a lifestyle that's contrary to what God has taught. And I think one of the greatest challenges we are going to face as Americans in the next 10 to 15 years especially is are we going to figure out how to hold to biblical truth? We're not going to sacrifice. We're not going to compromise. But while at the same time showing mercy and grace and love, to say what Aaron said a minute ago, I'm just as broken as you are. I'm just as sinful as you are. It's, it's how sin comes out of my life that may look differently. How sin shows up in my life that may look differently. But we're all broken. It's just a matter of what way we're broken. We, and I'm not on the panel. I'm kind of jumping in as a panelist here, but... I'm passionate about this church because we have got to let the gospel of Jesus Christ penetrate not just what we say and sing on Sunday morning, but the gospel's got to shape how we relate to people. If, if I could just finish this. Yep. So that's, go. a, that's a good friend. So it's, it's just sad because it's not what I know who Jesus is. And uh, the one thing that I think you should reflect on your own soul whenever you are encountering you know, somebody who is very hostile to God like most of the LGBTQ, LGBTQ community is if Jesus was sitting across the table from you, lunch, like we're going to go to in an hour, what, is, what, what do you think he'll tell you? Do you hear you're a screw-up? Do you hear that you're a sinner? Do you hear all of these, like, pharisaical negative things about yourself? No. That's not what Jesus says to you. Jesus says, like, hello, my beloved son or daughter. He says that exact same thing to everyone in the LGBTQ, to LGBTQ community. Like he doesn't, he doesn't go and say, oh, well, you know, make sure you break up with your, uh, you know, if you're a woman, make sure you break up with your girlfriend before you come to church. He didn't say that by all means. No, no. He says, come, come to me right, right now. And, and I, I know this is like a, maybe a faux pas thing to say, but uh, I, think, I, I think it's biblically 100% true. If you think that it's incompatible to be gay and Christian, like, go check your sort of pharisaical list that you've added to, uh, to uh, people preventing to coming to the king. The question is not what happens. The, uh, the question is not that beginning state. You know, we, we debate after that state of acceptance of grace. But never underestimate God's ability to show grace beyond our wrong beliefs about him. And I can say everyone in this room has had wrong beliefs about God that we have all been discipled our way out. The same thing goes with sexuality. I, I, have, I have seen... Uh, Christians that were uh, were gay and then became Christians and then gradually saw that struggle and worked their way out into where they are today. 
So don't put these barriers between people because Paul absolutely condemned those, condemns those barriers, both in Corinthians and Colossians and Galatians. Mm-hmm. Like, do not add anything to uh, preventing people from coming to Christ. This, the, the same message applies to every single person in this room, whether it's gluttony, whether it's pride, whether it's arrogance, and whether it is sexuality. Well, our job is to love people, and that's it, right? It's just love, like love people. Show them, show them scriptures, and that's it. Uh, and and I, I, I don't think that the message, that message is being sent from, I'm, I'm a Texan, I love Texas, but it's not being sent from the church in Texas, right? Uh, what people hear and what they see uh, is they see judgment. And, and we know that we're all forgiven from that judgment. Uh, but we need to show that to those, those that are farthest and, and adopt them in and show them that the fact of what it means to be brothers and sisters in Christ, in this new family, in this, in this new kingdom, and this new love. Yeah, go ahead. Can I say something real quick? Sure, sure. Um, go ahead. I think, I think for parents in the room, one of the important things for parents in the room to remember is that um, you know, the movement today is, is separating biology from gender. Like that, that's the, the whole movement has separated what your gender is from what your biology states. And actually, one of the scary things, and we've had some folks from Washington, from actually Austin, who work with us come. School districts are really working to implement this idea, separating gender from identity and all that kind of stuff. You need to be aware of what's happening for your kids. Mm-hmm. But also, the key thing for us is we're, we're trying to teach a biblical identity that's what the church, what we're trying to do is help them understand what masculinity and femininity looks like. Right. Not necessarily with social norms that to be masculine means you have to do these things. But what does a God picture of masculinity and femininity look like? Right. Because they're getting confused. And again, what's discipling them is the media they're watching. The culture is telling them that these are, I don't feel like a boy. I put myself on the scale between male and female. Now there's a whole sliding scale, which right. I mean, it's, so, so the reality is, but that's, that's not truth. That's where... Your, your feelings have attached that. I don't feel masculine. What is masculine? Well, you have a wrong idea of what God has called you to be. Right. So this is where the church steps in to try to help you understand what it means to be a boy and a girl. But th- there, there is a, a hard mechanism that's running against the ideas of what it means to be a man made in the image of God or a female made in right. the image of God. And right. so we have to work hard. And when, we, when our kids push up against that, we have to be able to find ways to help them understand this is actually God's idea and God's plan for you. Mm-hmm. And even if you're struggling with that, that's okay. We're struggling through things. We just need to find that we're pushing through to try to find what God has for us. I just want to finish by saying we believe in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we believe that amidst the brokenness we see across the landscape of our country, which, by the way, I understand can be, be something we're afraid of. And let's be honest. One of the reasons we lash out sometimes with judgment or with unloving responses is because we're afraid. But the truth is we believe that Jesus Christ can transform any person's heart no matter where they find themselves, no matter what position they're in. And so parents, what we want you to know is if you have a child that comes in your living room and says, Mom and Dad, I'm gay. Mom and Dad, I'm a boy trapped in a girl's body. Mom and Dad, I'm confused about this or that. We do not want you to freak out. We want you to know that there is hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have got to be people of hope amidst this broken world we're living in. We've got to be people who believe that. And I'm thankful that our panelists have helped us remember that. Can we thank our panelists for sharing with us this morning? Let's, uh, let's watch a quick video.